Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to the podcast today. I'm Paula. I'm so grateful for your being here. I have an interview that I am so excited to play for you today, which is with Teo Montoya. Teo has become a friend over the last few months. He's a human design analyst, a metamodern myth mender, and an indigenous futurist living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He is also an enrolled member of the Lipan Apache Band of Texas. His work focuses on synthesizing cosmological and spiritual systems, myths, archetypes, and modalities to find ways of supporting an emerging world in crisis through human development, ecological literacy, and reciprocity with our more-than-human kin. What an awesome bio, right? We had such a rich conversation about being grounded and using divination as a tool, and also the value of divination. And his work specifically with myth mending is what he calls it. And he explains what that is. He talks about what human design is for those of you who are newer to that. And since we're both projectors, we went into that particular type in a little more detail. We also talked about the importance of myth and meaning and the concept of metamodernism. And he breaks down some of these things. You know, Teo's work is so important because it's really at the leading edge of where we go from here during, you know, a time of ecological and social crisis that we're in. We also talk about indigenous futurism and what he defines it as, why it's important in this day and age. So please do enjoy this interview. Before we jump in, if you are interested in getting support with your online business, I work with spiritual entrepreneurs to help them create an offering that they absolutely love to sell, market it with more ease, learn to love sales, and support you through your astrological chart. So Vedic astrology as a support tool. I currently have limited availability to work with me. So if you would like to learn more, go to the link inside the show notes and book a call. Okay, now our interview with Teo. Hello, Teo. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here with you, Paula. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've been talking about this for a while and having some conversations and I'm just excited to share this with people. Too, it's like we've been going back and forth for like months trying to find the right timing and and it feels right now. It feels good. Yeah. We were just talking about like your your bio and like all the different titles that you have and I <laughs> I want to kind of jump in here because you know, you're a human design analyst, metamodern, myth mender. I love that. I love saying <laughs> that. That feels fun to say. And an indigenous futurist. Okay. So we're going to jump into all those things. And like the thing I kind of like to start with is human design. Maybe some people may be familiar with it or not, but I'm curious how you encountered this and like where you were in your life. Would mm. you, would you say you were already kind of on a spiritual path or did it kind of take you by surprise? I definitely was already on a spiritual path. I think I was in my post-atheistic rational side, having grown up in... I'm an enrolled member of the Lipan Apache Band of Texas, and I was raised with a lot of Native ways, and that was something we bonded over. So that was really part of my upbringing, and then I went to college and all that. So I was I was definitely in this this spiritual space, and I and I learned it from this delightfully irritable old woman named Jagruti who would go on to be a mentor of me for 10 years. She passed away in August of last year. And I got pulled in by one of my college friends who was a family friend to help her move to Hawaii. And I tell this whole story because she's a manifester in human design. And the second time I worked with her, she sat me down on the table and told me my human design. And I'm sobbing in this old woman's house, just going like, what is happening right now? You're literally, I'm just crying. She's chain smoking cigarettes. I was just, it was just a, is an experience. And that is who my mentor was. She kind of took me under her wing and we had a wonderful mentoring relationship for 10 years, you know, a big part of who I am. And that human design uh, knowledge just steeped in me for that long. Cause it's been since 20, 
yeah, 20, like very end of 2012, 2013 that I was introduced to it. And I was very much still in that like very rational, science-based, uh, relativist kind of mind. And it took me years before I actually started stepping into the human design experiment and eventually getting training at her initiation, which when we talk maybe a little bit about the types, that's what manifestors are good at. And it's completely, to me, it is, it is a language. I often talk about human design as an archetypal system, not as, as a myth itself, not as this objective reality thing, which we can spend all day talking about and arguing for, but just as this archetypal system, this language that helped me understand just the different ways of being human, of being conscious, right? It's based in the I Ching. So that language was in there, the 64 hexagrams. Yeah, it's completely colored all the work that I do. And it's an extremely powerful tool. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, I definitely was living in New York City when I encountered Vedic astrology and had a, you know, it was kind of not, I don't, I don't know if I was atheist. I just didn't have anything that I was attached to necessarily. I was going to yoga and I was like, it's all good, right? I don't know what's happening, but this thing came into my life and sort of like reorganized my being. It was like, oh, there's something bigger that I can connect to that is really powerful as a tool. What I loved when I encountered your work is that you kind of sit nicely between the practical and the esoteric. And that is a high value of mine. And I think that's what attracts a lot of my clients to me is that I'm not like, woo, <laughs> like, I'm, you know, let's float off in space together. Like, so I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about inhabiting that space, like having something that's this esoteric and powerful tool being fully having the faith that it's going to deliver, right? Not having an issue with that, but then also like being really grounded in how do we use it as a tool and not get all crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think that that's something that I'm constantly sort of pushing for in the human design space is that like, let's root this, let's ground this, let's bring it, bring it down, you're not up, you know, it's such a kind of in the new age spiritual wellness space. It's so easy for us to and that's changing quickly, but like, it, you know, just the content and everything's changing quickly. But it was really much as like, let's get out of here. Let's transcend. Let's not even be in this space. And for me, that's just never felt correct growing up, being so connected to earth and spirit and just that needing to be a central part for me. And when I went through my sort of atheistic phase, you could say, it was really about like, this is important. There's something here. There's something in spirit. What is it? And that is where, again, I orient towards human design as an archetypal system. Like I deeply believe, believe in, I don't think archetypes as these collective unconscious, these forms that our human consciousness takes, these forms that humanness takes. And that when we have these systems like Vedic astrology, human design, Western astrology, as these like, you know, these ones that are kind of very broad, they can apply to so many people. You know, I think Vedic's way more situated in a culture. What it sort of led me to was that what did these systems produce? And they produce meaning and they produce purpose and purpose can't exist without meaning. Atheistic, Western, colonial, rational worlds, meaning ceases to exist. And actually meaning is preyed upon. You know, we're sort of shoved into a system of economy and who we are, what is meaningful to us is actually manipulated and controlled through marketing and like, what clothes am I wearing? Who are my friends? That becomes meaningful and, and meaning is no longer rooted. Meaning is no longer spiritual. And to use some meta modern language, which I'd love to talk about later, we're in a meta crisis. We're in a meaning crisis. And that meaning crisis is this secular way of being that is literally beginning the psychological health crisis, right? It's what create, creates anxiety and the depression and all of these disorders of, of meaning. And truly, I think when we work with these systems, we have to choose that we are going to engage with something that is not an objective something necessarily. Again, we can argue about the objective reality of these systems, but we have to choose that. And when we engage with it and we get to know it and we get to see ourselves reflected in it, then I'm walking down the street and I'm no longer questioning my meaning. I'm going, oh, I'm interacting with this person this way because of my energy signature. Oh, this is happening in the collective zeitgeist because... Mars is doing this right now. And it gives me a lens to interpret the world that makes me feel like I know what's going on. And that's not trite. That's not small. That's huge. That's the entire point of religion, of cosmology. And I truly believe that humans cannot exist completely in a secular way of being. 
And it's part of the reason that we have ecological collapse and, you know, climate terror and all of these things going on, right? As we need that deep sense of meaningfulness so that we can wake up every day and go like, I know I'm here. I know what I'm doing. I know who I am. I love who I am. And then we can step into that. And that's at some point to me to engage with these systems healthily, that has to be a choice that you make to do so. Yeah. And it's interesting. I feel like there's something about I mean, I'm mixed, but having some indigenous blood and being very connected to that world, I don't know, there's something in there about like understanding that the universe is trying to communicate with us through these natural rhythms, through systems. And and literally, like my teacher, Dr. Robert Svoboda says, if you use like a playing card, you can communicate with the universe. It doesn't like the system is just a tool to help us have that connection and that meaning so that we can place ourselves in the universe and we can start to act in ways that are with that rhythm rather than trying to create our own rhythm that's not based on nature. It's based on, you know, whatever. I mean, we call it like Rahu world. It's like Rahu is the North node. It's very innovative, but it's also like scattered and disruptive. And, you know, the energy is hard to control. And so our world has kind of spun in that direction and it's hard to that's not a myth that we want to be a part of when you say. Absolutely. And and that's the term I use, like meta narrative. We need myths. We need systems that help us understand who we are and take into account the complexity of what we're in. It is not easy. You know, I think about it, it's like, it's great that we might have a personal spiritual practice, but if that doesn't include sort of the ecological crisis, the communal crises, the societal issues, um, politics, all of those things, then we're not actually living within the complexity of our reality right now, which is deeply complex and difficult to engage with. But yeah, that's where I actually think that these systems allow us, um, I talk about it as sort of a, an archetypal flexibility or, or a mythic muscle, a meaning muscle. It makes us able to deal with complexity. You know, when we're looking at a human, you know, human design chart, a Vedic chart, whatever it is, you're having to quickly synthesize, oh, this planet's here and this planet's here and this energy's here and this is doing here. And how do those all work together? And just that process of synthesis, I think allow is like actually almost like a training for the brain to be able to hold complexity, that each of us have complexities. The world's experiencing complexity. How do we engage with that? How do we work with that? And that's what I think one of the greatest values of these systems are is is actually being able to engage with the complexity of what we're in, you know, yeah. not getting out of it. We're actually trained in, in Vedic astrology. I mean, I hope everyone is, I am, <laughs> to kind of think of it as a goddess. And so there's this, you know, we're both holding the intuitive space of the way that we learn things. And there's a relationship that we can't quite put our hand on. And then we're also doing like calculations. <laughs> and so it's really interesting to hold both of those things at once. And it's been really useful for my life in general to have those two frames at one time. To go back to what you said a little bit about you know, you're being indigenous and being mixed and being between those worlds. I think that mixed people and people who are straddling two worlds who come from a culture that is deeply rooted in spirit or ritual or myth, and then to enter into sort of the Western colonial worlds. And that is not necessarily in that. It's like the bet their myths are like manifest destiny and, and all of these different things. You're always trying to figure out how they weave together or else you kind of eviscerate yourself, right? You separate yourself. And if I'm always considering how mixed people are constantly trying to integrate the two and what you're speaking to about that, that spirit, this is, this is how I like to break down is just a subjective, objective oscillation, right? Like the, we're having a subjective experience that is not the objective sort of Western colonial world would say that's not useful. That's not provable by science. But when you boil down the objective world, all it is, is actually in like intersubjectivity meaning many people have agreed, that's what the scientific method is, many people have agreed through their experiments that this is the truth. And to forgo the subjective experience, the phenomenology of like what is happening in our bodies and, and our emotions and our mind, to get rid of those as a way to interpret reality is like cutting off 90% of our ability to adapt to what's needed to being, that's, you know, we need to adapt to. And when you're talking about bringing that spirit in while also doing the sort of calculations, I see that right there is that subjective objective oscillation. And what emerges in between those two, I think is what's going to save the world. So it's going to yeah. save us. It's going to, it's going to give us meaning. And that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about meaning. Cause I've heard you, you know, you've done some amazing lives. If, you know, people are interested in following 
Teo will have your IG handle, but you do these lives sometimes and you've been talking about metamodernism and like, mm-hmm. maybe you could talk a little bit about where, where we are, you know, mm-hmm. and how, how the myth has evolved in that space. Yeah. So I love looking at things. So some of you folks may have heard of like integral theory state, like Claire Graves stage theory. It's just this concept of like a development of consciousness that we do move through these developmental stages and coming from a traditional stage or even before that, like mythic animus stage, myth is a subjective interpretation of the world that is intersubjective, right? Often in a place, in a landscape with certain people. And those bring the context because humans are always trying to understand the context of which in which they exist. So myth kind of started there. You know, and all of our indigenous cosmologies and prophecies and creation stories and all those things are this inner subjective understanding of reality that, and, and I say inner subjective as a not just between humans, but also between the landscape and between their, their journeys on that landscape. And then we get into the modern, which is really where the objective frame comes in. And it is seeking idealism. It is seeking truth and it is seeking this meta narrative to understand and that actually is the coals of white supremacy, of nationalism, fascism, is that sort of like, we are the ones and the sort of believing in a human ideal that we have somewhere to go. And understandably, in the modern period, I think range from maybe mid 1800s, I forget exactly, but until about the end of the World War II. And it's easy to imagine that after World War II, we were pretty like skeptical, critical of like, oh, there's a lot of people out here saying that they know what the world needs best. And it's literally killing and genociding huge parts of the human population. And then we move into postmodernism, which is what most of us exist in now um, and sort of how we think about the world, which is this sort of critical view of like, I don't know if I trust science all the time. I don't know if I trust Western colonial society. Maybe this other knowledge is good. Maybe these indigenous knowings are good. Maybe this or just your knowing from your family, right? So it's, it's a swing back to the subjective frame. I think this is a beautiful place where we've been collecting and deconstructing power. The civil rights movement is absolutely a postmodern movement. It helped create what this sort of idea is. And so we've been breaking apart. We've been deconstructing all of these things and meaning in that. So imagine you come from a modern perspective. Their meaning is like, oh, we're moving towards a human ideal. It's most likely white. There's only fix the only people with power fix the meta narrative of why humans are humans, you know, thinking about all those crazy science studies of like sizes of brain and IQ and everything, social Darwinism, everything like that. And then the postmodern comes in and it's just like, no, my subjective experience is good. Actually, there's so much knowledge here. Actually, the, the knowledge of African, black, Asian, all of these people of the global majority, indigenous is not only good, it might actually be better. And so this relativist subjective frame comes in. And then now this is the, we're moving into metamodern uh, epoch, the sort of culture epoch. And that's about oscillating between the two. That's about going, yes, each of our individual subjective frames are good. And we got to contend with this larger world that is objective. And the question that sort of sits with me is like, what comes after liberation? Because the point of postmodernism is to liberate ourselves from like power structures. And this is where this metamodern perspective is about reclaiming idealism and progress and myth, meta narrative, going like, let's make a story. Let's make one. Let's create one, you know, or use the ones that are around and adapt them to the reality as it is now so that we can move forward together to confront the meta crisis, which is the political climate and meaning crisis of individuals like psychological health and and development. And that can only happen because we got so skeptical. You know, we can't trust anything in the postmodern. Oh, that's not true. You know, and I think a lot about even cancel culture is just this deep, like rejecting of certain people's objective viewpoints or subjective viewpoints. Just going, no, that's, that's not going to work. That's not correct. Sometimes it's an excellent tool. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But there's this, what happens when we stop deconstructing? And my fear about postmodernism, we're just going to keep breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down. And then nothing is true ever. And this is where the point where we have to have truth emerge. It has to have truthiness. It doesn't have to be the truth. It has to have truthiness that we can all engage with and move into the future in a way that is necessary. Because we need a lot of action. We need a lot of mobilization. 
And we need a lot of people who know who they are, why they're here, are developed enough to understand the complexity of the world and engage with it. And when I think about these systems, for people who are uprooted through diaspora, through genocide, that are deep climate crisis, who are deeply disconnected from their indigenous roots, those roots that are reflected in the landscape, they're floating around just abstract vessels of spirit and mind and body, but they have no root. And so my big question is, how do we use these systems like astrology, human design, all those things to give people meaning again, to give people that sense that they belong, that they're here for something, that their life is meaningful. And it's amazing what happens when you root into, I am deeply needed. I have a meaningful life and I have work to do here. All of the other sort of questions and anxieties and who am I and existential crises, those sort of trickle away. But we have to engage with it as sort of, we, we call it in metamodernism, like naive, like a pragmatic idealism, like knowing like this is a big hill to climb up and we're not going to just run to the top and be like, I have the best idea and I know the way forward and everybody just needs to understand their human design and the world is going to suddenly fix itself. It's like, no, we got to get real. There's people in survival mode that aren't going to be able to do this. So being pragmatic, but continuing those ideals, informed naivete, being like, I don't know anything, and I'm still going to take a step towards something. Yeah, there's so many myths from India that I read initially out of total excitement, and some of the stuff just didn't stick with me. And then I read them again, and had that pragmatic kind of naivete, but like, experientially was letting it be medicine to my my being, just listening and taking in the myth in a new way. And it sort of can crack you open. That story still has potency all over India, you know, for like the Ramayana, for example. It's really interesting to think that like these were created. In India, we say like maybe the Rishis created them and they're these altered beings that like channeled the stuff down. But I think what's cool about metamodernism is we can also become these really elevated beings by just being in the in-between space and, you know, the space of openness and like understanding who we are in the universe, that we actually are spirit and all of those things. And like, um, I'm curious, because what you're talking about is, I think what you're calling myth mending, right? This process mm -hmm. of helping people, what does that look like? So there's been a lot of sort of personal myth work in the past. Young started it, Joseph Campbell's work, um, a couple of others that, that really focused on the individual psychological health. And I'll just, I kind of take it a step further into like rooting into place and ecosystems and the natural world and making kin. But myth mending is essentially rebuilding those muscles of making or meaning making, you know, being able to pull from all of these disparate places because we are disparate beings. We are spread wide in this globalized culture, you know, like I'm, I'm influenced by Japanese culture, my indigenous culture. You know, like I'm just, I'm, I, we're, we're all these conglomerations because there's so much material. And from those materials, sort of using them in a subjective way to understand ourselves, to build a myth for ourselves, build a personal myth. And so myth mending is, I see it as this way of engaging with people who are going like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm doing my spiritual work, maybe, or I'm into one of these systems, but I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't know why I'm here. It's like a bandaid they've slapped on it. That's good, right? There's still something in those. But like, I want them to have that full and somatic sense of this is me. And I pulled from my ancestry, I tried to reclaim those roots. I looked into the, the stories of the Pictish and the Gaelish. I've looked into the stories of the Basque people, right? And I'm bringing those back in and I'm resituating them in myself, in the deeper complexity of the lives we lived in now, in this century. And I'm, I'm reconfiguring them, working with them, trying to create a personal myth that contextualizes me, situates me as a being who is here to do work in the world, do good work, to show up, to support community, to support their families, to hopefully even think on a large collective level of how do we deal with political and climate crisis, right? And so myth mending is about helping people just step into that world of, oh, I'm Italian. And I'm going to go look at those histories. Oh, there's somebody in my lineage that was X, Y, and Z. They were some big prince or whatever it is. And I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to take those stories. And it's, again, just rooting people into their subjective experiences without, and they're choosing to do it. They're going on a process of it instead of just 
sort of even extracting from like these systems, astrology and, and using those to just sort of plaster on themselves like, oh, I'm this, but really inviting them into this process of building a myth that might include all of those things, but is their own. Because we are such mixed beings culturally that I don't believe that just using one other culture's spiritual meaning myth is going to work for us now. I think it's actually sometimes a little naive even to expect that, oh, if I just go with this indigenous teacher and learn these ways, I'll have a full understanding of the world. Because the world is so deeply complex. Learning those things is also working with them to have them better sort of show up in the world. Yeah, myth-mending is this process of working with all of those subjective materials, gathering them, gathering metaphor, gathering archetype, whether it's the system, using it to sort of weave a web of meaning around you in which you're situated in. And I also ask people to deeply do so with the, the, the natural world, which we are a part of, you know, with river and stone and rock and tree and, and these things that are in our landscapes that we see daily. Bring them in as metaphor that they hold you. You hold them. Sort of, again, situate them so they go, who are you? I am Teo of northern New Mexico, a mental projector, you know, uh, Jupiter and all of these things, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I situate myself in a complex web of meaning that meets the complexity of today. And then that purpose, that idea of like, what am I here to do? What are my gifts? All those things, those things just, they just percolate. They just show up. They just go, oh, this is who I am. This is where I'm situated. This is a need. This is my gift. Boom, we're here. We're doing the work. You know, we show up to it. So this myth bending is about beginning that process. And it's a long, lifelong process. And I think many people who are into these systems are already on it. They're already trying to figure out who am I? What's my purpose? But instead of looking inward or in the land around them, because they have a deep disconnect from their landscapes, they look to India or indigenous folks or, you know, some other esoteric tradition. And those are all useful materials. But I actually don't believe in a way, one way anymore. The complexity of our lives here doesn't really... I don't think it meets that. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, we, the truth is one. The wise know it by many names is how you might translate it. But there's actually a word in there that means vibrate. They vibrate in many ways. And so that's kind of an interesting, you know, when you were talking as well, you mentioned the word weave. And I was going to say like Tantra in its original conception, not the way that it's kind of been thought of now as being associated with sex in the West and being associated with black magic in India. Tantra is actually about weaving the different things that work for you into a life story, you know? So it's like what you're saying sounds like Tantra, um, like in its pure form is there's no mediator between you and spirit. You are creating your truth and you're, yeah. you're experimenting and you're figuring out what works for you. Yeah. And in human design, there's specific channels we call tantric channels. And it's how life force moves into you and your direction, yourself and your connection to all things. So it's like quite literally moving you and it, you, but it's your own. It's not anybody else's. So I was just catching that parallel. And this is where just like, again, I love that truth statement and also that term truthiness in this concept because the overlapping of disparate subjective realities of people, ways people conceptualize the world. There is overlap. There is truth in there. That is looking at like cross-cultural studies. It's like there's, there's something in the human canon, the body, our connection to our animate landscapes that reflects universals, that reflects something in which we all are experiencing. I love that you bring that in because that's to me, that's exactly it. And, you know, being between two worlds as a mixed indigenous man, I'm always going, what truths are here and what truths are here? What truths are here? What truths are here? How the hell are we going to weave these together? Mm. Because if we don't, I'm right. afraid my children won't have a world to live on. I am thrilled to share with you an opportunity to get a hold of my handpicked lay low dates for 2022, as well as success dates to help you with launches, with signing contracts, with making big decisions in your business. If you would like that, it's called the 2022 Astrology Guidebook, and it's at my website, weaveyourbliss.com. You'll see it right at the top in the red bar. 
So get a hold of it. It's $33 and 100% of profits go to an Indigenous-led environmental organization. So I hope that's a huge help for you. Also, there's a link where you can drop it directly into your Google Calendar, meaning it's all there for you. You don't have to do anything and you can plan around those dates. So I hope that's helpful to you. Let's jump into human design a little bit because this is a really unique system that was sort of downloaded and it contains a lot of different things. But I've heard, I think you and many other people talk about how it's kind of just instructions, like it gives you instructions for what to do. So can you talk a little bit about what it is, just some of the basics so that people can understand like how this is helpful? Human design was a system that was channeled in like 1987 by this guy who calls himself Ra-Uruhu or called himself Ra-Uruhu. It is a synthesis. It's a synthesis of multiple modalities. It's most sort of the background, the base of the system is the I Ching, right? So the 64 hexagrams um, and their movements. And then it's Western astrology on top of that. That's kind of what sets the placements. It's the chakra center or the, ch- the chakras that create the centers, but it's a nine centered being as opposed to the seven centered. And there's a whole story around that. And then there's the uh, Kabbalah tree of life. And that's sort of this intermixing of all that. So he kind of took or channeled that all of these systems have this way that they overlap and they express a very nuanced way of a very nuanced look at being human, being in this human vessel and what it's about. Along with that came all kinds of myth and cosmology about how it came to be neutrinos, this sort of quantum aspect of of how the planets affect us. His bigot, like, the system is so deep. <laughs> like, if you spend years and years, it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, right? Um, but at the surface, what it is here to do is to help us make decisions as ourself and to move away from the mind into the bodily wisdom that we carry, the bodily intelligence awareness that we carry. And so, it creates, depending on which centers, which chakras in the in the body graph are defined or filled in by planetary placements, all this stuff. You can kind of think of it as like if you were going to look at a Western astrology chart, instead of those planets just being in their placements, their placements also sort of turn circuits on and off. They, it's almost like a planet's here and then all of a sudden there's a bridge between this light switch and this light bulb and then they connect. So it's it's this this interesting system. And from that, Again, it's really here. The base level is to help you make decisions in your life that are not from the mind. Because the mind is a beautiful tool. It is so wonderful at calculating, understanding, discerning our reality. But at the end of the day, if we're moving from the mind, this is the strategy I have to do. This is the thing I have to get done. This is how I have to walk through the world. These are the decisions I need to make. Those don't align with our energetic truth. What's true in us, in our bodies. So human design gives us a type which is sort of our uh, very basic level of our energetic blueprint, how we're supposed to move through the world. You and I are both projectors because we move through the world very differently than, than the majority of the world. It gives you a strategy, which is a way to make decisions using that bodily intelligence, using that bodily awareness, not in the mind. And then it gives you an authority, which is sort of the way you make decisions with that strategy. So maybe just for like example, you and I as projectors, Projectors, we are non-sacral beings. So we don't have a ton of sacral energy. We don't have a ton of life energy. It is really the world around us, our community that call, that sort of provides us that and calls us in. And we can actually help support moving life energy. We can guide life energy. We can advise others to use their life energy in better ways for themselves. And that's what a projector is here to do. Be a guide, be an advisor. And then we have our strategy, which is to wait for the invitation. If we come in where it's like projectors can be the most annoying people on the planet because we come in and go, well, I'll help you. You just need to do this and you need to do that. And we can give unsolicited advice all over the place. But if we sit back knowing our worth, knowing our capacity, knowing our, our gifts, and we sit back and we just let the world come to us and go, oh, you have something I need. And you're like, yes, I do. Here it is. Pay me for it. That'd be great. And I'll support you. And our authority you know, for you, you're an emotional being is how you make those decisions. So if I came to you, Paul, and I was like, I really want to work with you on this thing. And I'd love your support here. And I want to do that. You need to go through an emotional process to discern if that's correct for you. 
You know, if you're very, very excited about it right at first, that's a red flag. Hold off. Wait a moment. Ride that emotional wave down. You know, go, oh, actually, this is a horrible idea. And then after a while, that sort of balances out. And then you've got like a 90% answer of like, yeah, I think that will work. That is a good invitation for me to use my energy on, which is limited. Yeah, super interesting be talking to another projector and and thinking about what a game changer it was for me to start living in my design. And I say that like, I didn't actually know about human design, but there was something I just realized that I'm giving unsolicited advice that's not wanted. There was some adjustment that was made. And when I learned about human design and the specifics, I was like, yeah, that feels so right in my being that, you know, I spent a lot of time being like that frustrated projector that was like watching people careen into their karmic shit sandwiches. (laughs) I was like, Oh, man, I could just help you. (laughs) Yeah. So it is it's such a brilliant thing to be able to to live in your design. And, And you have to have some faith in this system as well. Even in its mythic origins, you have to just trust if it feels right that it is for you. And that's where the subjective comes in. And that's why it's it's a little tricky because in its cosmology, it's saying like, this is the way it is. And you just accept that or not. But then in the application, it's really asking you to experiment. This is an experiment. See if this works for you. Because the ultimate point is for you to make decisions that are correct for you and you to engage with the world in a way that is correct for you as an individual as a unique being, and to do so authentically and to bring your fullness to the world. And so I love that narrative of like, just give it a go. If people show up and they're curious about it, you know, most people walk away going like, oh, and I'm sure this happens with Vedic too, of like, holy cow, this is me. I've never had somebody tell me who I am. And there's a settling, there's a resting of like, oh, I just moved through the world this way. And that's what it is. And I think that that alone is so powerful that and so opening that the question of whether it's true or not, or all those things, I'm just like, that doesn't, it doesn't even matter. I don't even like to have those conversations because it's just give it a go. It's right. Give it a try. And if it sticks with you and you're enriched by it, great. And on my end, it's just also watch out for dogma. Watch out for that strictness that comes in that is a protector that's going, if I don't use this knowledge correctly, my whole life's going to fall apart. That is not a way to engage with it. You know, I don't think any of these systems, if you're coming in like desperate and you're just trying to stick to it and to the nth degree without any flexibility, that's ultimately going to cause, I mean, that's not, you're definitely operating from minds, not from like bodily truth and authenticity. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about Vedic astrology is the timing element, like understanding how things fall in time. And so when people come in and I'm talking to them and I'm letting them know, okay, this period is for this and this period, you know, things will shift at this time, then there's a settling that they feel just a knowing, especially if they're in a hard period. It's like, oh, okay, it's going to end. I know that. So I can feel I can just, you know, be with this discomfort right now. Very powerful. As I say, that's what I love Vedic for. I remember when my Vedic reading had just been like, don't even try to write or get in a relationship before the end of 2021. Like, don't even try. Like, he's like, seriously, it's not the time. You're only going to be frustrated. And there was something that that resonated so deeply because it felt like I was running up a hit, like I was pushing and pushing and pushing. Like, I had to, you know, this has to happen. This has to happen. And then it was just a settling of like, I'll let time take its course. I'll let these things unfold naturally. And that it, when you can kind of relax into, I trust the cosmos, the world to meet me when the time is right. Talk about relieving, talk about moving through the world in a way that um, is not driven from this fear of lack and insecurity, but of like, oh, there will be a time when this is met. And I have a whole other life, whole other aspect of life that I can exist in before that time. Yeah. So um, the listeners may be curious because I do have your chart. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd After love hearing to hear you talk. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because Teo's in his his K2 period, which is the south node. Um and it's a disruptive planet. It's and it's, you know, you have them across your 1/7 axis in our the way that we do charts. So, it's aspecting onto who you are. You've got this nodal energy of like innovation and flipping things on its head and since November 2020, you've been in this period that just started, you know, started then in seven years long of that K2 energy of like flipping it all on its head. 
and also can be about like circuit breaking, like it can end things really quickly or change things, cause you to like change where you live and change what you're doing for work, for example, <laughs> like reinventing yourself. So it's a really powerful energy and something also you're ruled by Jupiter and you have this beautiful exalted Jupiter with the moon, with Venus and Mars all in the eighth house in Vedic astrology, which is the unseen and these powerful energies and like the fact that we're talking about Tantra and that like weaving myth, understanding where we come from, the root of everything. But it has this beautiful quality of like pulling stuff up from the depths and teaching and sharing and, and you know, letting people understand it better. I think you said to me something about a previous reading where somebody was like, you're almost a person who would go to an ashram. And this is this combination of four planets in the eighth house. It kind of has that flavor to it. But because of the timing, you know, like if you live to be in your 90s, you may go run off and be in an ashram. <laughs> but you're first going to have to be here in the world with us and, and teach. <laughs> and I love that. And uh, when that was reflected back to me, it just felt like this, again, talking about weaving a myth for myself, it felt like the sacred responsibility of like, okay, I know that I engage with the world in a different way. And I'm trying to consider the world in new ways um, and our experience of it as humans and the climate and our ecologies and all those things. And I am not a frontline person. I am not somebody who's out there doing like doing something, but I'm definitely like a teacher. Like it feels very clear to me of like, you're here to share ideas that help other people contextualize. You know, when I hear you talk about that, that, that to me is just settles into my system as meaning, meaningful to me. It makes sense. It helps. It makes me make sense of where I am in the world and who I'm here to, who, who I'm here to be. And then that purpose piece sort of shows up of like, Oh, okay. What ways am I engaging that allow that energy to flow through me and flow out of me? Cause yeah, until that 2020 period, I was not in those, even though I was carrying all of it in me, I was working in IT at Facebook. I was, you know, working in nonprofit, which was beautiful, but it didn't feel like that energy was pouring out of me or actually able to be poured out of me. It wasn't sort of condensed yet. It's interesting because it's like you were in a period of Mercury and that's very much a planet of communications and being out in the world. And you're still like a fabulous communicator, but it's like it was being channeled into technology and like systems out into the world. And then you went into the depths of like, let's bring up the stuff that's been, you know, hibernating in me. I'm curious if you could talk about like coming to to know that you were going to do something that was very different, you know, like going from IT to like what you're doing now seems like a big change, but they're both kind of technical. Like you do a lot of like investigation and, and like work in human design that's very technical and you get into the weeds and, and like a lot of research. But I'm just curious, like I know I have a lot of clients and there's probably a lot of listeners who feel like they have this interesting or quirky or this gift or some connection to this spirit or whatever. And they're sort of caught between like doing something practical and doing something more spiritual. So maybe you can just like speak about that. Yeah, this is an interesting intersection. And I just want to name, I think so many of us are that way. You know, I think it's very, very human to be quirky and spiritual and have these other things. It's just there's no space in society for them as much anymore. That was such a courting with Saturn, you know, of like, okay, you're going to get in the real world. You've been protected by education. You're a very idealistic person. When I got out of college, I wanted to create an indigenous sustainability retreat center on my parents' land and had no, no wrecks or capability to do that. It was all in the idealism. And I think when I dropped into the IT world, it was very much just a reckoning with, oh yeah, you got to support yourself as, you know, I'm 22 at this point. But there is something there that the only thing that made it okay was the relational aspect of it, was the fact that I was in a group of people and we were supporting each other while we met these demands. This was such a huge identity rift for me that I've really only more recently been able to integrate partially through this sort of metamodern investigation of like, just straight up, you know, I often broke it down to my whiteness and my Indianness, you know, of this very deeply spiritual, animate, prayerful way of being that's constantly sort of investigating the universe as well. It just says who I am. 
And then this person who can be very logical and technical. And those are the skills that other people are looking for in sort of the Western world. And so I found myself in IT and it was just soul crushing. Really? It really, it really was very difficult, partially because the, the dissolution and like problems of the world when you're in those spaces are like amplified where you're like, wow, this isn't working for anybody. Like it's really not, you know? And so I left about a hundred K behind and then made 16 K working for a nonprofit native led nonprofit in the San Francisco Bay area called the cultural conservancy lived off of savings. And it was the most difficult, terrifying transition ever. Cause I was like, what did I just do? potentially change. I changed the whole course of my future. But I knew that if I hadn't left that, I, I would be stuck there. But that question of technology was has always been here because I existed as a computer geek, spent most of my high school playing World of Warcraft and video games and building computers. And that was something I was deeply entrenched in. And often folks who are in the spiritual realm or that, that sort of, you know, more subjective, alternative, new age space Technology is a no-no. Technology is this thing that's like, it's bad. We actually need to go back. You know, there's some primitivism going on as well of like, we just need to go live on the land and be in polyamorous community communes. Maybe I'm taking a little bit of a jab at some people. Apologize. But <laughs> there's, it's just like that, that real going back. And to me, technology is still within the legacy of human consciousness. It is not something to destroy or dismantle. It is something to wield again and with and bring it in and contextualize it within these myths that are life-giving, are generative. You know, the question I'm constantly holding is how do we use how do we orient towards our computers that are full of these minerals and crystals and you know that that are sacred? And they've been deeply extracted from the earth in horrible ways. How do we hold them and go, I honor where you come from. I grieve how it came to be. And I'm going to wield this for good, for life generation, for generativity, right? That I will do something with this tool within the context to, to use it for good. Because the idea of getting rid of technology or moving beyond it or not needing it, I'm, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I just want to wield these tools instead of in these extractive capital ways, you wield them for good. And working in a native nonprofit as a, as a media maker, we were always considering like, especially if you know, indigenous folks, a lot of communities have really strict rules around cameras and how they are engaged with them. And we we're always in that question of we're using these tools that have been used to extract from and have damaged people. And we're trying to use them in good ways. How do we help transition that? To me, holding that question was the only way that I could start to integrate this very objective, Western, technologically advanced way of being, this globalized culture we all live in, and this whole other way. How do we infuse those and have them work together? And they're not so separate, actually. It's just that we have a block because there's been so much harm created from that sort of Western colonial way of being. And understandably, some of us are like, I don't want anything to do with that. Mm. So I think we're trying to like kind of smash the binary in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's either this or that, or it's both. And like, can we just have both and and try to figure out how to navigate? Because yeah, I don't think we're not going to have technology. And I think this is a great segue into indigenous <laughs> futurism. <laughs> you did a great job of taking us there, Teo. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this because, you know, something you encouraged me to do, I was always like, Ugh, fantasy books, like, come on, people back to earth. Like, you know, I had just this block around it. And you were like, yeah, why don't you try to read the parable of the sower? And then I, I went on to read the mists of Avalon, which is huge. It's like a huge book, but just kind of feeling into that and having an experience that's totally different, allowing myself to have an open mind and just be like, okay, what is there here for me? So I'm really curious if you could kind of talk about what indigenous futurism is and like how these kinds of fantasy myths could help us <laughs> think about the future. What are these both? What are these both? Um, a myth is a story. It's a narrative. What is a fiction? It's a story. It's a narrative. And so indigenous futurisms 
futurisms in the most basic sense, it's like science fiction movies, science fiction books, right? Or fiction books or speculative realities, right? It seems on the surface, it's very like trite. It's like, oh, we're just having a little fun. We're playing make-believe. Oh, it's cool. There's, we're you know, talking about some guy in a different planet. And But what they do for us, these futurisms allow us to... Um, so I just wrote an article about this that'll be published in 2023 with Wiley Blackwell about global futurisms, a sort of emerging movement of futurisms that are non-Western colonial. They're outside of the Western colonial lens. And futurisms are this way in which we can engage with the complexity of what I call our present frame, which is all of this stuff. Talking about the complexity of I'm indigenous and I'm mixed and I have to use technology and I have to pay my taxes and spirits calling me at 3 a.m. in the morning to wake up and go pray. You know, how you would, this is a very complex subjective, objective reality that you're, we're constantly in. And so futurisms allow us to play in that complexity, use that present frame to speculate upon it. Where could this go? Right. And so the future stage, what I call the future stage, is a place where we can play with the complexity of the present frame and prophesize. And there is, especially for indigenous folks and people deeply rooted in earth-based cosmologies, the difference between a speculative reality and a prophecy is null. There's no difference. That there is a way that we are engaging with our embodied somatic and mental experience of the complexity of life we're in, and we're flinging it far into the future, and we're playing with it. What could be? And and when you think about the prophecies of indigenous folks, which are almost popular, you know, I see people, uh, tons of non-indigenous people like talk about a Hopi prophecy or the the seventh generation or all those things. And that is because within them, they hold a possibility that actually allows the future to emerge. And this is not even that great. That's not that spiritual. It's not this like really wild out, outside their idea. So an indigenous futurism is taking indigenous cosmologies, indigenous ways of being, indigenous frames, ways of knowing, original instructions, myths, uh, folklore, all of those things, situating them within a complex present, right? This, this interesting complexity we're in and then moving them into the future. So these futures are often full of hope, of transcendence, not only liberation. We're not just fighting the bad guy and being liberated from them. That's already happened. I like to tell people that indigenous people are already post-apocalyptic. Indigenous <laughs> people have already gone through a genocide. They've already gone through all of these things that we see in sort of uh, popular science fiction of like dystopian realities and hunger games. They've already done it. So they've already experienced that they can survive those. They've already been even liberated from them. Where do we go next? So when I think about indigenous futurisms, I consider worlds and create worlds through fiction, through speculation that are very different, but are also based in this sort of present frame because I'm, I am in this present frame. And in this way, I'm, you know, writing books, I'm creating characters, I'm doing all these things that, yeah, on the surface might just be like a fun science fiction story. But underneath, I'm really contending with what truths, what ways of being, what potential futures need to be breathed into, need to be spoken into. And I'm actually attempting to do this very mundane task of prophesizing, of saying, this is what should come. And if that is powerful enough, if it reflects enough of our present reality, people are going to lean towards it. Because it goes, oh, this is a potential for which we can build. It's a narrative for which we can start orienting our lives around. You know, if an indigenous futurist says we're going to have advanced or eco-cultural biotechnologies where we're in prayer with spirit while using advanced technologies that ensure the world's working, you know, the world is, is moving towards health and vibrancy and diversity and all of these things, then that gives... Even though it's a speculation, it gives a blueprint for us to walk along. And that's exactly what prophecy is. Prophecy are these speculations on the future. And that's not to deny their magic, not to deny that they come from spirit or any of these things, but to say that they give us a narrative that says, you know, by the seventh generation, the, the, the fires are going to change. These things are going to start happening. The world's going to act in this way. And of course, we see that happening. And that's speaking to that individual who prophesied, who received that message from spirits ability to see what was coming, to see these possibilities. And so when I'm working with futurisms, 
and what I call global futurisms, which is futurisms of all non-Western colonial based folks, I want to invite them into this process. Like we need as many meta narratives, as many stories, as many prophecies, as many books that allow us to go consider, oh, in 20 years, this one thing's happening. And actually, Octavia Butler wrote about this 30 years and gave a really brilliant response on how to deal with that. And that's why when I look at Octavia Butler's work, especially the parable of the sowers, I'm like, you're an oracle. You're literally an oracle. Literally prophesize the future. That's what science fiction has always done. When science fiction or fictions find these materials that are so apt, the culture absorbs them quickly, right? Because they condense complexity of the world's and put it into, um, I call it very, very kind of intense word, but the mimetic condensing of cultural materials, right? We're actually breaking it down. So when you think of a meme, it's just a picture with some text. It has so much complex context surrounding it. So when we build these memes, in a sense, in, in a, in, through language and culture and media, they can then be picked up and help us understand very complex things simply. And we need as many people creating those as possible so that we can walk into a future that is unimaginable to us now. Yeah. And as you're talking, I mean, this is kind of a loaded question, but, you know, I hear hope in what you're saying. And I also am a hopeful person. And it may be this, that we have the same (laughs) incarnation cross, which you maybe can talk about. I don't fully understand. But despite all the terrible things that are going on in the world, there are infinite possibilities of how things can go from here, you know, and so I try to stay in hope. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about what is an, you know, say, what is an incarnation cross? And how does this help us understand ourselves? And then also, like, what gives you hope? I think I'll start with hope, because we coming from like a postmodern society where we're kind of like, oh, all this stuff is bullshit. All this stuff is not working. All this stuff is harmful. At some point, it's pretty easy to adopt apathy and nihilism. It's pretty easy to be like, nothing's meaningful. This sucks. You know, I don't know how many of my friends that are my age have told me, I don't want to have children because I don't know what world they're going to show up in. For me, hold, I hope so deeply. And it's from a pragmatic, I try my best to have it come from a pragmatic space, not an idealistic space. We have to maintain hope from a real place, not this projected, I'm good, we're all good, positive thinking, all of those things, but just this like, There is possibility for new futures to emerge in which we are thriving, we are liberated, and so much is possible. To get to that point, you have to understand sort of the complexity of the situation we're in. And so hope for me is this deeply felt sense of we're fucking brilliant. (laughs) We are so intelligent, kind, empathic. We have these brilliant bodies that know so much. And in my mind, I'm like, if only we were to tune towards them and tune towards the world in a meaningful un- a way that we understand, there's nothing but hope. That's the only option. This is where the incarnation cross is so funny. So in human design, we have something called the incarnation cross, which is our primary energies, both of our bodies and of our sort of our minds. And they are these sort of fixed, it's a very, it's an across and they're fixed. And it's this sort of balanced, these balanced energies that we are here to bring into the world. The incarnation cross is what you can call a a karma, dharma. It, you know, it's, it is our purpose here. It's our energetic purpose, right? And that doesn't mean like you're going to be an accountant, but like there's, it's a, it's an energetic thing. And for you and I, we have the writing across of Eden. This cross to me is what my work's about is that we fell from Eden. We fell into the rational, the intellectual, the, objective reality. We sought knowledge over communion. We left Eden. And within that is also sexuality. And then we are mired in that as human beings, this deeply relational, sexual, intellectual world that we are trying to figure out. And the writing across of Eden is all about seeking, almost seeking Eden again, but from a place, not from leaving behind the intellectual, the sexual, the sin, right? That sort of idea, but by being in it and moving forward. And that's a deeply uh, human, you know, it has a lot of humanity to it, right? Because this cross has a lot to do with the experiences, the very difficult crises of being human, those emotional ones, those dark nights of the soul, that when we move through those dark nights of the soul, compassion, our compassion grows, our humanity grows. We have a sense of understanding what it means to be human. Then the idealism comes in 
And for you, that's your primary sun gate is idealism. I'm on the very opposite end of you. So that's, that's my earth or that's what I'm grounded in. And the other side of that is caution. It's like not getting lost in idealism, but actually being very cautious and almost pragmatic and wanting to find something that's true and not getting lost in ideals. And so when I think of the writing on Cross of Eden for you and I and Incarnation Cross altogether, it gives us a way, sort of this is the energy we're here to inhabit. And for you and I, it's this hopeful, idealistic, cautious, very contemplative and deeply human experience of life. And how can we work with all of those to bring something forth, to bring ideals forth? I feel like we've come full circle here. (laughs) (laughs) Finding that balance. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. I have some rapid fire questions, which you can answer, you know, as quickly or not as you want, but I always ask everyone the same. So the first one is what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? I think one that piece that's really helped me is being a deeply sensitive person and emotional person is that there are times I can acknowledge and be in my emotions and still show up to the world. That was something that was really important for me to understand because when I'm being sort of battered by by life a little bit and feeling emotionally overwhelmed, that there's still this capacity to show up to the world with that, wearing that on my sleeve, but to continue to show up and not to hide away. Mm. And that has been something that I come back to time and time again, because this work is you get confronted with some very difficult things. So on that note, the second question is when you feel anxious, confused or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? I am not great at doing things in the face of that. I will just name the thing that I've been leaning into the most recently is just communion, just actually going out on the land or laying beneath a juniper for 30 minutes and just saying, hey, I'm feeling a lot. Hold it. Every single time, every single time I walk away from that, I am not as I was when I walked in. And it sort of hurts me to consider that a lot of people don't have access to doing things like that and being with place in an intimate way like that. Yeah, we didn't even get into that. But we have talked about land and how we relate to land. It's such an interesting topic. I don't know if you want to say anything before I jump to the next question just about place. Now you can read a bunch of books about forest bathing and, you know, get some like science behind it. But it's just to to me, it's like when we allow our ecosystems, when we engage in relationship with kin through our animate senses, through this, this sensuous being that we have, it relieves so much. It really does. It, it It allows us to show up holding a lot and go, I don't ever have to hold alone. I'm never purely an individual. I am deeply nestled in an ecology of humans and animals and rock and tree and, and waters. And I can lean into them. And in fact, when I lean into them, I weave myself with them. And then a mutual responsibility is born. And a purposeful one is that going, oh, there's opinion that I go to very often. If that opinion <laughs> got cut down or was in danger, I'd be strapping myself to that because he's me. The whole part of who I am. That is so deeply human, incredibly human. It's just been a long time since folks have done that in popular culture. And that's where the indigenous sensibilities and earth place-based, earth-based sensibilities allow us to, and this is whole the whole eco-psychology canon is about how does place hold us and inform us. And I've leaned into that a lot. Give it a go, people. Just go find a tree you like and tell it your woes and lay beneath it for a while. You'd be surprised what can happen. So what is your favorite hot beverage? My very... Kafa and uh, Vata self loves coffee <laughs> a lot. I don't know if my body agrees with that, <laughs> but I think that is my favorite hot beverage. It's I wish I had good. something. <laughs> I wish I had something nice and herbal to say for you, but <laughs> no, coffee is the most popular answer. So, <laughs> um, what would be your last meal on Earth? I think it might be my dad's uh, pozole. Mm, His nice. recipe for that. Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable? I am a flittering butterfly and do not maintain morning routines that well. The ones that have nurtured me the most that felt non-negotiable were actually reading almost immediately upon waking as a way to sort of drop into, not jump up and start doing a bunch of stuff, but just to be there, but not fall back asleep. So there's, I often come back to reading as like a way to just be in the morning and nothing heavy either. I'm not like reading about war or something, you know. What is a book you would recommend or like 
a book that's been really important to you or what you're reading now. You can name more than one too. You know, Dune, Spell the Sensuous, Building the Cathedral, uh, Walking the Clouds, which is an anthology of indigenous futurisms. Those are four right now that like, they've completely changed my life. Yeah. And you have your, your metamodern book club. So if people want to read with you, <laughs> they yes. can, you can give us the link and we'll put it in the show notes. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, so what's one thing bringing you joy right now in your life? It has been this shifting my work has really been one of the things that have brought me the, the most joy is just opening up to possibility. And it's been a really sort of stressful couple months. So that has been something I've come rooted into time and time again of just sitting in that, in that possibility and being lit, lit up by it. And, um, I mean, besides that, it's just being spending more and more time on land. It's just coming, coming into my way of being in ways that it hasn't before. So how can people work with you? Like what are the containers? How can they find you online? Yeah. So, um, I have a website, archaicremnant.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram, just arc.remnant. Do human design readings. Many types, one-on-one, -on -one, couples, partnerships, there's bundles. So there's many ways to engage with me as far as human design go. I'm also in the beta of my myth mending sessions, which is working with people in this sort of this mythic capacity that brings in human design, works through stuck parts, helps you root into a web of meaning and then step into your purpose. And I do a lot of work with masculinity and uh, human design that I'm, I'm building a program for. If any of those interest you based on that, um, you can find it all on my website or on Instagram. Awesome. We'll have all those links for everyone in the show notes. Teo, it's been so lovely speaking to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Paula. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful